Okay. Welcome to Progressive News Network, our Sunday show where we sum up and go into some depth with one or two stories. Um, Let me backtrack a little bit there. I was having a little disfluent moment there. Life President Biden, uh, believe it or not, I am a stutterer. And there are times when I word switch when I don't mean to. So I apologize. Let me start all over again because keep in mind, folks, this is a live broadcast. There's no cutting, no splicing, no dicing, nothing fancy, just nitty-gritty reporting. So this is Progressive News Network. My name's Janine Moloff. I am the producer and the host. Our executive producer and founder is a gentleman named Rick Spizak, who is marvelous. His progressive uh, credentials are impeccable. When the election of 2000 hit back in Florida and we had the whole hanging Chad nonsense, Rick Spizak was one of the people that went down to counter what the Brooks Brothers riot thugs were doing. And the Brooks Brothers riots, which are now big uh, Republican operatives, they were trying to stop the count. Keep that in mind, because that's what the GOPs become, a party of making sure that unless you're wealthy or unless you're a rabid bigot, your vote shouldn't count if you're allowed to vote at all. So Rick was one of those voices that reported truthfully, God bless him. So, and hopefully my voice will hold up too. That's the other thing. It's kind of a long broadcast. I'm going to do my best. So here we go. If you saw our advert, we are doing a series based on a, um, a, a research paper that was written called The Moscow Project. And The Moscow Project is, and I'm reading directly from the actual uh, site itself, quote, The Moscow Project is an initiative of the Center for American Progress Action Fund dedicated to analyzing the facts behind Trump's collusion, yeah, I said it, the C word, not to be confused with the other C word, Trump's collusion with Russia and communicating the findings to the public. The Moscow Project's team employs a multidisciplinary approach towards its work, leveraging a unique combination of experience and expertise gained on Capitol Hill, at the State Department, and in private industry to examine this complex and sprawling series of events stretching back decades. Okay? And what this is really talking about is the fact that, yes, Donald Trump was most likely a Russian asset working against the best interests of the United States. Now, before the Donald's tiny little brain explodes in that overinflated head that is of his that is basically occupied mainly by ego and other types of word salad, yeah, I'm on a roll today, um, the fact is there's far too much evidence to that's been documented to, yes, establish the case that Donald Trump was most likely a Russian asset. In fact, not just the Donald, but also his grown kids and, yes, his attorneys. We can't forget the attorneys because here's the deal. Dictator wannabes like Donald Trump and, yes, Vladimir Putin, they need a couple of things to obtain their, to, to fulfill their quest for nonstop power. One, they need guns in the form of armies, militia, whatever. And then if they worry about the law, they need attorneys that are willing 
to break their oaths and bastardize their political careers to make what can only be called illegal and immoral actions look technically legal. So yes, that means uh, Giuliani, means John, Chap- uh, John Eastman, definitely, the whole lot of them, all right? And there's enough documentation, yes, to establish the case that the Trump administration under Donald Trump, Donald Trump was most likely a Russian asset. Uh, and again, last week we, did, we dealt with chapter one. We're doing a chapter a week. And last week, chapter one, really, and you can go back to the project yourself. Don't just listen to me. Um, you know, it's online for anyone to see. He went broke multiple times. All right. His daddy bailed him out several times, but after Daddykins died, then he had to find another, uh, another source to flow him, as some of my friends would say, which means, in other words, another source to bankroll his bad business decisions. And, you know, some of, the, some of these accusations, the, let me start again. Some of the documentation also ironically comes from Trump's own sons where they said, yeah, we did a lot of business with Russia. You know, that Russia invested hundreds of millions of dollars through various oligarchs. They bought up uh, apartments, uh, luxury condominiums and buildings, some of which had not yet been built. Um, and, and, you know, or had a lot of problems and, and basically they lost money in the deal, but then, and they paid cash. And that's, say, these oligarchs, that's basically pointing straight to the possibility, yes, of money laundering. And so that chapter one goes into all the nonsense in the Trump organization and the way they do business. Okay, it's just a fact. And again, you can go back. Uh, and once again, nothing in Russia happens, especially when money's involved, without Putin's approval. That includes the oligarchs. So when Donald Trump was receiving money infusions from Russian oligarchs, it was with Putin's approval. All right? And part of this report on Chapter 2 is going to deal with, um, you know, basically it's called hybrid warfare. It deals a lot with Putin this time and how Russian President Vladimir Putin has had a strategy to, as the advert says, undermine democracies of the world. Uh, and, you know, once again, this, I mean, I'm good thing I'm talking loudly because I've had microphone out of the way. Hopefully that's better. Um, this goes back a long way. You have to understand this. You know, I have a theory, and that is that Putin never got over the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think Vladimir, I'm going to call him Vlad from now on. You, when, I, when I hear, when I say Vlad or Vlad the Impaler, I'm talking about Putin. And I think that Vlad the Impaler saw the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of his KGB career as an ultimate humiliation. And everything he's done thus far has been revenge. You know, all these, all these diplomats and strategists and, you know, you see them on NBC, you know, uh, ex-Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill putting in her two cents. Putin's, Vlad the Impaler is not that complicated, all right? If you understand how cheats, liars, thieves, and murderers think, then you understand Vlad the Impaler. It's that simple. And in this instance, it's about revenge. That's it. And I know it's hard to understand. Somebody 
wanting revenge that badly. But in that instance, Vlad the Impaler and dumb Donnie Trump have a lot in common. What makes Vlad the Impaler more dangerous is that he's a whole lot more intelligent than dumb Donnie. So when you hear me say dumb Donnie, I'm talking about Trump. Vlad the Impaler, Putin. So chapter two is titled, uh, of the Moscow Report, is titled Hybrid Warfare. Um, and the actual, this is under the case for collusion, hybrid warfare. The time period is 1999 to 2016, Russian President Vladimir Putin's strategy to undermine democracies around the world. Okay? And so that's the first half of this, of this broadcast. After that, I'm going to discuss how, Russian, how Russia, under Putin's dictatorial rule, has broken a, tr- a peace treaty that is already in existence, namely the Budapest Memorandum. Now, the Budapest Mem- Memorandum came into existence in 1994. Signatories included the United States, Ukraine, uh, parts of the EU, oh yeah, Russia. And basically, the deal was and we're going to talk about it in more depth, the deal was that if Ukraine gave up their legacy of nuclear warheads, all right, that were left over from the Soviet days, that they would get uh, a promise from Russia that, one, Russia would respect their right to be a sovereign nation and that Russia wouldn't attack them. And And the third promise was that if Russia did break these previous promises, the parts of the EU and, yes, the United States, would come to Ukraine's defense, whether NATO liked it or not. So not only is Russia breaking the treaty, but we are too. So the the Budapest Memorandum, a treaty engineered to guarantee Ukraine's right to exist as an independent nation. Again, as I said just now, Russia was one of the signatories. But Vlad the Impaler has no use for truth or honor. Make no mistake, and this report will also discuss how the Trump administration weakened, severely weakened our national security when it came to Russian aggression, and that included espionage. And, of course, after both stories, there's always our jackass of the week award, and you'll find out a little bit later. Now, I'm going to take a little drink here. Hopefully my voice will hold up. One other little thing. This is not the kind of broadcast that invites callers. Now, we had a previous partner, and she did allow callers to come in and sometimes monopolize the call. I'm not her. All right? If I welcome callers, I will announce it at the beginning of the broadcast, and I will allot time at the end of the broadcast for calls after I've done my spiel, and not before. Understand also that if you call in before that time, I will read your phone number over the airwaves. Too bad, so sad, because I'm not going to let people act as freeloaders. We pay for this time. This ain't Fox, baby. We actually have some standards. Well, I take that back. Fox does have standards, in my opinion. I have to use that disclaimer it's just the standards are so low that they're 10 stories beneath the freaking gutter. All right, so let's get into it. The Moscow Project. 
Trump as a Russian asset, and now this, this chapter two, the case for collusion, hybrid warfare, years 1999 to 2016, Russian President Vladimir Putin's strategy to undermine democracies around the world. This chapter deals a lot with Putin this time. So the chapter starts out and they start discussing Russian interference in the 2016 election. You know, as it turns out, Hillary Clinton's accusations weren't so crazy. Now, I'll acknowledge this report is done very well. It does have a bias, though, the, the Moscow Project, and that is um, it tends to lean more towards the traditional Democratic Party, and, you know, I'm going to offer commentary along the way. So Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election, the report says this, there was nothing unique about this. Russia's been doing it for a while. But the attack, the, the interference in 2016 was far more targeted, more vicious, and it was part, according to the report, part of Russia's larger strategy towards the entire West. Make no mistake about it, what's happening in Ukraine now isn't just an attack on Ukraine. It's an attack on the West. It's an attack on democracy. It's an attack on modernity itself. And it is, according to the report, and I agree, it's been defined by the dictator in charge, you know, for the last two decades, Vlad the Impaler, you know, who's, quote, president for life. I mean, what kind of a freaking joke is that? President for life sounds almost as freaking stupid as saying you're a little bit pregnant. There ain't no such thing. You are, you're not. And if you're president for life, that means you're not a president. It means you're um, no good, blank, blank, blank dictator. I'm trying really hard not to cuss right now, all right, even though it's very difficult. It's hard not to say that Vlad the Impaler is a goddamn Nazi bastard. Oh, there we go. You know what? The truth hurts. All right, so let's go on to it. Um, so the spy master in chief, that's who Putin really was. All right. Um, so as Trump, you know, was basically losing money in real estate and getting this money, this, uh, infusion of Russian money, um, there were, Putin was kind of doing his thing too. And there's been several biographies about Vlad. Uh, there was one by, um, by Fiona Hill and Clifford Gaddy called Mr. Putin. There's one by Ma Masha Gessen called The Man Without a Face. And another one by Karen DeWisha's Putin's Kleptocracy. And all these biographies really do emphasize how, Putin, how Vlad the Impaler, how Putin's background as a KGB officer, you know, in the end days of the Soviet Union, really shaped his political philosophy. And, you know, there was a saying that... Um, back in the 70s, and they said, you know, once KGB, always KGB. The KGB was to Russia what the Gestapo was to the Nazi state. Make no mistake about it. You know, people were terrorized by the KGB. And, you know, the thing is this, this is a commentary of mine, the corporate media needs to stop soft-peddling Putin's political resume. They keep referring to his career as an administrator in the Russian state, but Vlad was and still is a barbaric spy and advocate of torture and other abominations, other crimes against humanity. Make no mistake about it. But because Putin's background was in espionage, 
he, according to the report, he does, quote, place a high value on espionage and intelligence as foreign policy tools, and his governments have funded those tools accordingly, end, end quote. So, and you know, that's not so hard to understand because every government does it. It's just to the extent, under Putin's management, you know, they have carried out assassinations. I mean, this is, you know, make no mistake about it. You, in my opinion, Ukraine is the first step in Putin's attempt to take over the entire European continent. And the, and I know I'm getting off topic, the Russian warships in the Arctic, dangerously close to the Canadian border. Yeah, that's an act of war. Because then if they can take over those waters and make the Canadian uh, military back down, they have a way to invade Canada and then the U.S., or at least a place in Canada to lob off missiles into the U.S. Make no mistake about it. And China's silence on this issue is very suspicious, too. But let me go ahead. So here's, again, sorry I'm getting off topic. I'm, I'm a little wound today, all right? So Putin started his whole political career in the KGB, uh, and he was just a little baby. He joined in 1975 at the tender age of 22. Now think about that for a minute. Any of you who started your career at the, at the age of 21, 22, that first job really does mold you in one way or another. And this did also. You know, he received his training in Leningrad, and then, then Vlad served in Dresden in East Germany from 85 to 90. Now keep in mind, those years from 1985 to 1990, I'm sure that means Vlad was involved in multiple abuses, multiple human rights abuses. Now, while he was in East Germany, good old Vlad cultivated a lot of assets in the West, and then the Berlin Wall fell, okay? And there went Vlad's career. Berlin Wall fell in 1989, you know, let's see now. So that was, you know, they're saying, tear down your walls. Putin was then leading the KGB's office when these protesters in East Germany uh, gathered outside the gates of the KGB building. And officers for the KGB were just really busy burning documents, burning government documents, because they didn't want those documents to fall into protesters' hands, which is pretty damning, okay? If they were, if they were doing what was considered legitimate, they wouldn't need to burn the documents, now would they? Um, I know I'm using a lot of innuendo, but it is what it is. All right, so then Putin decided, you know, he was going to bang his chest like, you know, some King Kong type. He went outside, and he threatened the protesters uh, with some severe violence if they broke through the gates. So that's pretty much it. We know that, you know, East Germany fell, and the two Germanys were reunited, the Soviet Union collapsed, and there was good old lad searching for a new career. So he returned to Russia, and he was an advisor and then later on a deputy chairman in uh, the government of St. Petersburg, and then he became part of the national government in Moscow. Again, doesn't the unprovoked violence against Ukraine by Putin look a lot like revenge? 
where Putin uses past humiliations. Just a little thought bubble there. So anyway, the, the biographers of Vlad note that his trajectory through the government, also, you know, because of what happened to him in his career, they said, quote, inculcate, excuse me, inculcated in him an antipathy towards democracy in the West. In other words, he hated the West. Okay, he blamed the West for ending, basically ending his career and humiliating him. Yada yada yada. You get the idea. So, you know, where America and the rest of the West saw, you know, the Berlin Wall fall and the Soviet Union collapse as, you know, something something good where you know we could introduce democracy. It didn't look like that way to good old Vlad. To him, he was humiliated, and. You know, you have to understand something. In outside of a Western mindset, humiliation to humiliate someone is considered something horrible. All right, it, it, it's in some cultures to humiliate, especially <clears throat> a proud man, would be worthy of the death sentence. Okay, I mean they just, you know, these are abusive societies to start with. <clears throat> and think about it. What happened the last time if you've been abused by someone and you humiliated them? They just got more abusive. So, again, what happened was now the Soviet Union fell and it ended his career, and everything was in chaos in the Soviet Union. And, again, doesn't the chaotic, what looks like, according to a, a bunch of corporate reporters, they call this attack on Ukraine, kind of chaotic looking, but doesn't the chaotic nature of Putin's attack on Ukraine look a lot like revenge? You know, if I were, if I were the head of the German government in particular, I'd be really nervous because with this psychological profile of Putin, it really looks like all he wants is not only all of the former Soviet Union's colonial possessions back, but more to come. And it looks like, to me, Putin wants Germany and then the rest of Europe, uh, just like any abuser does. Think of Putin has the mindset, the psychological profile of an abuser. And what happens when you stand up to an abuser and you don't put them away for life? They become more vicious and they want more revenge. And that's what we're dealing with here. So the 90s came and went, and, you know, Putin tried to rebuild his career. Um, you know, according to the report, his, his attempts were marked by, quote, coup attempts, economic crises in a weak state. Um, and according to the report, quote, many in Russia, let me back up here. The report says, quote, the 1990s, during which he sought another Putin to reestablish his foothold in the Russian government were marked by coup attempts, economic crises, and a weak state. Many in Russia, Putin by most count, accounts included, blamed this on the unbridled capitalism and corrupt privatization of industry that was backed by America and the West. As a result, it's no surprise that since Putin assumed the presidency in 1999, his responses to major world events reflect a worldview that sees Western-style democracy and liberalism as a geopolitical threat, end quote. Now, one thing I want to mention here. In this report, they keep talking about Western-style democracy and liberalism, and they 
linkage, because again, the report, you know, reflects kind of a democratic centrist viewpoint. The report links those two together, but liberalism as viewed by by true democracies has nothing to do with corporate buildup. This report links again, democracy, corporate buildup to liberalism, and it's a mismatch, okay? Corporate buildup, such as we've seen in Russia and China and other places, is neoliberalism. Now, neoliberals basically are, in my opinion, um, reworked Republican corporatists, nothing more. True liberals reject neoliberal fiscal policy, period. You know, neoliberal fiscal policy, these are the people that will say, you know, they they are uh, social liberals and fiscal conservatives. Again, and the reason they feel comfortable saying that, in my opinion, is because being socially liberal doesn't cost any money to a corporation. It makes them look like they actually are playing by the rules when a lot of times they're not. But so when you hear this, I, I want to make sure you understand that true liberals are not corporatists. They're not necessarily socialists either. True liberals believe in having a balanced economy, one that has proper laws and regulation to make sure that just because you're rich or a big corporate entity, you can't break the law with impunity. Again, this report, and I keep emphasizing because it's that important, the bias of this report, the report overall is good. Don't get me wrong. It is. It's a, it's, it has a lot of documentation. The one bias I would say is that it links liberalism, democracy, and corporate wealth all together. True liberalism has nothing to do with corporations. When corporations embrace liberalism, they're talking about neoliberalism. That, that's the Clinton policies, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, that, all that, and Joe Biden. And neoliberal policies, especially fiscal policies, are rejected by true liberals. So if you want to get mad at someone, get mad at the neoliberals or the democratic centrists because they're the ones that are working hand-in-hand with Republicans. Basically, neoliberals, just like Republicans, favor big business no matter what over anyone else. True liberals do not. I want to make that clear. Okay, so let's go on. A little water here. My throat's starting to bother me. So let's move on to Vlad's presidency, okay? He was prime minister from 08 to 12. He saw a lot of uprisings in Russia. And Putin obviously just reaffirmed his, you know, his hatred of popular protests and true democracy. All right. Uh, The report says that this was, quote, followed by responses from Putin that reaffirm his antipathy toward popular protest and liberal democracy. Okay. Um, And then they include the following, the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 03, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 04, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 05, and basically these revolutions, quote, deposed or endangered pro-Kremlin leaders. 
It all, the report also mentions the Arab Spring protests that began in 2010. And Putin, according to the report, quote, Putin is, quote, Putin is ascribing these uprisings to the CIA and U.S.-backed non-governmental organizations responded by expelling the Peace Corps and restricting foreign funding of NGOs in Russia. Putin reportedly became further convinced that the U.S. was trying to undermine his authority in 2011, end quote. So there were a bunch of uprisings in the Middle East as well. Russia held parliamentary elections that year, and the elections, had, there were a lot of widespread allegations of fraud, um, and the allegations came both from Russian voters, from the Russian electorate, and international observers. And that was as, as documented by the New York Times and the BBC. Russian citizens, they took the streets. Okay. They had one of the largest demonstrations since the fall of the Soviet Union. This was in 2011. Hillary Clinton was then Secretary of State, and she, uh, according to CNN, she had, quote, serious concerns about the conduct of the election, end quote. Uh, Secretary Clinton also called for a full investigation uh, into the legitimacy of the Putin government, and as a result, Putin blamed her specifically for the protest, end quote. Uh, and according to New York Times, um, according to Putin, quote, Putin himself said, quote, she set the tone, she being Hillary Clinton, quote, she set the tone for some actors in our country and gave them a signal. They heard the signal and with the support of the U.S. State Department began active work, end quote, namely to undermine um, Putin and his government, okay? Um, Putin's rage towards the West really did boil over after the 2014 Euro revolution in Ukraine. Um, Putin's never been shy about using force to um, attack and subdue nations. The, the country launched cyber attacks, according to the Guardian in 07. This, the cyber attacks took place against Estonia in 07. And let's see now, and invaded Georgia in 08, according to Slate, and that Russia's actions against Ukraine in 2014, you know, when they were trying to get Crimea, um, did mark a turning point, a turning point. So Ukrainian citizens, excuse me, stuttering moment, Ukrainian citizens, quote, ousted the government's notoriously corrupt pro-Putin leader, Viktor Yanukovych, and that is according to Reuters and the uh, the Telegraph in the UK. Okay, the next quote was, quote, the Kremlin, I'm just reading from the report now, quote, the Kremlin seized on the ensuing chaos to illegally annex Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and invade its eastern Donbass region, end quote, and that is according to the BBC. So, this is what happened in 2014, all right? Ukrainian citizens, they were tired of this corrupt government under Viktor Yanukovych, pro-Putin, so they kicked him out. And this was done, according to Reuters, uh, done by the parliament. In an article, says, Ukraine parliament oust Yanukovych, okay? And Putin's response, when they say the Kremlin, you know, the Kremlin, in other words, whatever parliament they have there, 
just serves to rubber stamp, you know, Vlad's latest whim and his latest tantrum. So, you know, here's the actual quote, quote, after Ukrainian citizens ousted the government's notoriously corrupt pro-Putin leader, Viktor Yanukovych, the Kremlin seized on the ensuing chaos to illegally annex Crimea. So basically, Ukrainian citizens had a right to get rid of Yankovic. Keep in mind, Ukraine declared itself, <clears throat> Ukraine became an independent nation in 1991, okay? We're going to talk about the Budapest Memorandum, which is a treaty that recognized Ukraine as an independent nation, and that was signed off in 94. So, yeah, the citizens of Ukraine had every right to kick, their parliament had every right to kick out Yankovic, who was pro-Putin and apparently a lot of corruption. And so Putin's response was he went in with tanks and he illegally annexed the Crimean Peninsula and he invaded its eastern Donbass region. Okay? Now, that was the first time they attacked Ukraine. Took many forms. There was a military occupation of Ukraine, uh, military occupation of Crimea, especially the Donbass region. Russia also spread some propaganda, according to the, the Guardian, about the conflict through state-run outlets, which, again, nothing happens in Russia without Vlad say-so. Um, television networks, such as RT and Sputnik, um, pushed this propaganda. And RT, really, in particular, should hold its head in shame. We expect this from Sputnik. But, you know, RT, again, these, this is not journalism. They are propaganda outlets. The Kremlin had some uh, bots and troll farms. The Russian government had been supporting Yankovic's uh, government, according to the New York Times, and had been financially supporting them. Um, and after, they, after Russia invaded Crimea, the Kremlin also began funding separatist groups to solidify their hold over the region, according to Reuters. Now, the West, that means including us in the United States, we retaliated, um, and within two weeks of the invasion, the U.S. and many other countries predictably sanctioned Russian state-backed institutions, according to the New York Times, and that included uh, energy giant Rosneft and the development bank, Then I can't, they called the V-Bank. Further, and it angered Putin even more, okay? But there's more. There were two other events that contributed to Putin's rage towards the U.S. and to his decision to begin this, ca this campaign in earnest um, to disrupt the 2016 presidential election so they could get their puppet in, Donald Trump. Huh? So, excuse me for a second here. I lost my place. All right. So the, first, the, two, the two events, one deals with what's called the, Magnit, the Magnitsky Act, which, again, under the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton was um, Secretary of State. So if anybody wonder, what did Donald Trump have against Hillary Clinton? Well, you know, there were, I mean, keep in mind, Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump in years before this, were close friends. 
So to pretend the Clintons and the Trumps didn't get along is nonsense. But by now, Trump, Putin was calling in his IOU and Trump was his boy. And Trump was told, attack Hillary. So he did. So the Magnitsky Act is one of the things, one of the two things that really set Putin over the edge. And the other one's the Panama Papers. Extra events contributed to Putin's rage towards the U.S. and his decision to interfere with the presidential election of 2016 and to basically place his puppet, Donald Trump. The Magnitsky Act, hard to say, this came into law in 2012. Now, the law, quote, I'm just going to read straight from it. The law permitted the, quote, the law permitted the U.S. government to sanction government officials implicated in human rights abuses, allowing a crackdown on Russian officials who were involved in torture and who sought to hide their money in the U.S. Okay? And it did so, quote, by going after the very people on whose support Putin's power depends and whom he promised to protect in exchange for that support, these sanctions represented a direct threat to Putin's regime, end quote. And that was as reported by Slate.com. Uh, the article ran in July of 2017, titled, Why Does Putin Hate the Magnitsky Act? This is it. So this was an act that was passed by the Obama administration, and it, it's a law that affects foreign relations, and it basically allows the U.S. government it, it cuts the red tape, and so if the U.S. government, if the US government uh, finds government officials that are involved in human rights, human rights abuses, they can sanction those government officials. And you think, well, what does it have to do with Russia? Well, Putin stays in power by terror and other atrocities. And so basically... This is a law that really attacks the oligarchs, or at least starts to. And Putin's power depends on the oligarchs, their money, their mercenary troops, and, yes, his control over the military. And he, Putin promises he'll protect the oligarchs if they continue to support him forever. So if you attack these oligarchs, then that is a direct threat to Putin's power base. So, you know, the report says, quote, as a result, the repeal of the Magnitsky Act has been the primary foreign policy objection for Russia and the Putin government, end quote. Um, and the Russian government campaigned against the law. According to the Atlantic, uh, they, the Atlantic did an article on this, and one of the biggest proponents of the Magnitsky Act that was for it was an investor named Bill Browder. And Browder did suggest, uh, again, according to The Atlantic, that Putin probably benefits personally from financial crimes that led to human rights abuses that in turn led to this act being passed. Um, and these are crimes the Kremlin obviously denies happened in the first place. So basically, these oligarchs, you know, just like a lot of big businesses, these oligarchs most likely, for instance, use slave labor, child labor. They probably abuse the slave labor, so on and so forth. These are human rights abuses from which they profit more, and in turn, Putin profits more. Okay? 
In fact, one outside of this report, there's been several other reports that have said that Vladimir Putin's probably one of the world's richest people. And these are riches that, yes, he got paid, you know, by oligarchs. Um, to sum it up, Vlad the Impaler, in my opinion, is nothing more than a crime mafia boss. May not be technically the mafia, but he thinks like that. And these oligarchs pay protection money. It's not that complicated. Okay? And Vlad gets a lot of money for it, and he keeps his power base going. So that's number one, the Magnitsky Act. And, of course, he blames Hillary Clinton, even though it took the Congress to have to pass it, President Obama to sign off on the Magnitsky Act. Hillary Clinton may have been in favor of it, but she wasn't responsible for passing it. But she was the presidential contender against, against Russia's Russian asset, Donald Trump. So the second thing that sets Putin off the deep end, the Panama Papers. Love it. There's this group called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And, you know, I, I will admit I am probably an unimportant member, but I am, a, I am a member. And I love their work. Okay, I go to their, their websites and their reports for documentation, this, these are independent journalists. They do reports, and they bring truth to light from all over the world. And these are some of the bravest people in the world. Um, and in May of 2016, notice the timing, the election, right? The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists leaked thousands of documents, according to The Guardian. These documents came from a Panamanian law firm, and they they in detail showed how very wealthy and corrupt individuals use shell corporations to hide their money from authorities. Now, mind you, nothing new about this. You know, people will joke about, well, yeah, these corrupt people, they hide in the shell corporation that some corporate lawyer came up with. People have been talking about that for a long time. The difference is that the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, God bless them, found the proof in bulk loads, and they didn't discriminate, Dem, Republican, liberal, conservative. If you're hiding illegal, illegally gotten gains, it was found, and how they did it. And among those leaks, excuse me, among those leaks, we found that one of Vlad's, one of Putin's closest associates is a cellist, okay? According to The Guardian, this cellist's name is Sergei Roldugin. Now, according to the Panama Papers, this cellist, Sergei Roldugin, quote, owns a network of shell companies hiding roughly $2 billion, with a B, prompting speculation that Putin may have been using Roldugin to hide portions of his personal fortune, end quote. Now, think about it. How in the hell does a cellist have a string of shell companies hiding some $2 billion with a B of assets. Okay, that, that, that just is so ludicrous. It's like this big red flag that no government found, not even our Department of Justice here in the United States, but these, internet, <clears throat> these investigative journalists were paid next to nothing. They did. 
Okay. Now, the Kremlin's response to the leak, they attacked the Panama Papers. They called it, quote, an undisguised paid-for hack job against Putin, end quote. But according to the Moscow Project, privately, Putin again blamed Hillary for this threat against his personal wealth and power, and that's according to MotherJones.com. Keep in mind, Hillary Clinton had nothing to do with the Panama Papers. You know, so if, if any, you know, if any KGB apparatchniks or I'll just call them what they are, KGB neo-Nazi bastards, if they're listening, Hillary can't take credit for the Panama Papers. Those were independent journalists. Okay. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> After the story, I may have to take a break for a few minutes. I'll put on some audio just to get another drink because my voice is starting to run out. Asthma is so delightful. Anyway, so there you go. Now, the active measures that Putin employs war by other means. So according to the report, since 2014, Russia, which means Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, has increased their confrontation against the West. And this strategy has been dubbed, has been called a bunch of things by different analysts, including hybrid warfare, the Gerasimov doctrine, political warfare, and active measures. Now, the last part, active measures, is a reference to the KGB term, quote, for political and information efforts that fall between traditional espionage and public diplomacy. The report goes on to say, quote, one of the key pillars of the strategy is to use the openness of Western democracy to undermine governments from within, a goal achieved through three often simultaneous lines of effort outlined in the following sections, end quote. So, I've heard about public diplomacy. I don't really believe in it. You know, uh, I think several years ago I went, I was curious, and I got invited to a, um, what is it, um, Council Foreign Relations dinner. They had a, a speaker, so on and so forth. They often have diplomats, and they invite just ordinary people to come and listen, and they call it public diplomacy. I'd say it's veering close to propaganda. Not quite, but close. Um, you know, if it's a public relations uh, event, be honest, just call it that. Don't give it uh, a pseudonym like public diplomacy, because that's an oxymoron. Diplomacy doesn't happen in public. It happens in secret, you know, before the public is actually alerted to anything. All right, so... The idea of using the openness of Western democracy to undermine governments from within, Vlad didn't come up with it on his own. No. In fact, this tactic came straight from the writings of none other than Adolf Hitler. And I know that Vlad really worships Hitler. So, you know, what do they say? Scum attracts other scum. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to go on a little bit more. Now, one of the ways you undermine 
an, a Western-type democratic government or a Western society that values democracy is part is basically by okay. So one of the ways you do this actually coincides with the name of this new section, which is cultivating fringe movements and leaders in foreign countries. And this part really does talk about how <clears throat> the Kremlin, again, Putin, has supported efforts financially and, you know, through propaganda as well and misinformation um, to cause trouble, you know, among fringe movements. And one clear example of what they call, quote, a Kremlin-backed political movement in a Western democracy is France's National Front Party, whose leader, Marine Le Pen, wrote a crest of anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant fervor to a second-place finish in the country's 2017 election. The party received loans of some 11 million euros from the Kremlin-linked First Czech, First Czech Russian Bank in 2014. I'm reading straight from the report. These are direct quotes. Quote, Le Pen not only continually praised Putin throughout her campaign, but actually traveled to Moscow in March to meet with the Russian president. And this is as documented by Time.com, The Independent in the UK, and Time.com. The report goes on again. I'm reading straight from the report. Quote, her campaign also benefited from Russian hacking and release of emails from the campaign of her opponent, Emmanuel Macron and that is as documented by the BBC. Quote, however, in part due to France's moratorium on media coverage of candidates in the last 44 hours of an election, the leak appears not to have had its intended effect, end quote, according to the Washington Post. Okay, so need I remind you, Marine Le Pen, you, they call the group, let's see now, um, the National Front Party. But make no mistake about it, Marine Le Pen and the National Front Party are just neo-Nazis. And that's fine with, with Putin. You have to understand something. I've heard people say that Russia fought against the Nazis in World War II. Well, that's true. But this isn't the 1940s anymore. And the fact is, Russia has a long history of racial uh racial bigotry and religious bigotry, which really fits very nicely in with the neo-Nazi philosophy. Okay? So that's one of the ways that the Kremlin under Putin affected, you know, elections. Uh, again, straight from this quote, other European political moments, let me start again, quote, again from the report, Quote, other European political movements with links to the Russian government include Brexit and its chief advocate, Nigel Farage. Okay, so Brexit, and this is according to documented by the New York Times. So again, and it makes sense. Brexit, where with the UK pulling out of the European Union, weakens the European Union, which is exactly what Putin wants. There's more. The far-right German party, which is called Alternative for Germany, uh, was also one of the targets uh, that benefited from Putin. Also, the Freedom Party of Austria, uh, they signed a cooperation agreement with Putin's party to act as in, an intermediary between Putin and Trump, as documented by Reuters. 
which again, they don't need an intermediary. Trump is Putin's, I was going to say Trump is Putin's boy, but really, let's be honest about it. Trump is Putin's bitch. And Trump just bends over, spreads those cheeks, boom. And he likes it. Okay, I know that's a bit obscene, but guess what? Um, Dictatorship, neo-Nazism, white supremacy, that's far more obscene than my little imagery. Also, the Catalan independence movement also received significant support from Russian trolls, bots, and state television, as documented by Politico in the EU. Again, I'm reading straight from this. Quote, Russia has also supported multiple political movements in the United States. While most of the attention on the subject has gone to Putin's support for Trump's presidential campaign, there is also evidence that the Russian government has backed other fringe causes as well, such as the successionist movement, end quote. So apparently successionist movements in California and Texas uh, allegedly received office space, online support, and funding to attend conferences, quote, from sources with ties to the Russian government. Let me read that again. Okay. Quote, while most of the attention on the subject has gone to Putin's support for Trump's presidential campaign, there's also evidence that the Russian government has backed other fringe causes as well. The successionist movement, for example, successionist movements in both California and Texas have reportedly received office space, online support, and funding to attend conferences from sources with ties to the Russian government. Through the state-owned television station RT, Russia also provided the left-wing Green Party with a media platform during the 2016 election, end quote. It goes on to talk about how um, the Green Party candidate Jill Stein became, you know, a top commentator on RT. There's no secret there. She was prominently featured, according to the Daily Beast, as counter-programming to mainstream coverage of the presidential debates and the election. And that's her right. Um, Now, Stein is denied any knowledge of Russian interference, according to The Hill, but she's only complied with government requests for documents on her campaign in part. Um, This goes on to say that, quote, the common thread in the groups that Russia supports is not discrete policy goals, but rather Russia's attempts to co-opt the movements in order to undermine democratic institutions and traditional sources of stability in the West, end quote. Um, And a lot of these European nationalist parties that are usually like white supremacist neo-Nazi that the Kremlin has given support to, these are the same nationalist parties that argue against membership in the European Union and NATO, which, again, would weaken every European nation. And, of course, Putin um, rejects both the EU's existence and NATO, Um, you know, once again. And then this report says that Jill Stein and the Green Party's critique of American democracy, according to The Intercept, is that the two-party system is, you know, corrupt and irredeemable. And that fits nicely with Russia's goal of, you know, placing Trump in 2016. And I would agree that the two-party system is corrupt and irredeemable. It is a false choice. 
But let me let me kind of tweak this a little bit. This report makes a good strategy point here. Uh, you know, in terms of how these separatist movements, both most on the far right, but the you know a few on the far left, one or two. Keep in mind, though, Putin could have made such an impact, especially on the left with the Greens, with Jill Stein, if the Democratic Party returned to its roots of FDR and John Kennedy and abandoned corporate neoliberalism, especially neoliberal fiscal policy, which is the polar opposite of actual liberalism. The truth is that the corporate Democratic Party did this to themselves because they embraced being corporate toadies while refusing to do anything to benefit the people, such as Medicare for all, a living wage, police reform, uh, you know, basically making voting an easier thing, make sure every vote counts. All these things the Democratic Party, with its ties to corporate, refuses to do. That's what happened. Uh, you know, was I happy with Jill Stein being an RT? No. Okay, if it had been me, I would have rejected it. She wanted publicity, I get it, but I think it was very naive of Jill Stein, especially, you know, given the fact that you're helping to give credence to a worse dictator like Vladimir Putin. Um, that, And, you know, I interviewed Jill Stein once, all right, when she was here in St. Louis. Um, you know, her goals were not different, really, from other progressive goals. Um, and again, the two-party system is fraudulent. So a lot of what Jill Stein was fighting for was right, but she allowed herself to be used. And that showed a certain naivete on her part politically. I wouldn't have made that error. But again, Putin wouldn't have had that opportunity if the Democratic Party returned to their roots, being for the little guy, which they haven't been in a long time. Okay? Instead, the Democratic Party got taken over by people who claim to be, uh, let's see now, socially liberal but fiscally conservative. No. Okay? You can't feed your family with socially liberal policies. Period. So the Democrats did this to themselves. And I felt the need to give that commentary because that particular last part I felt was an unfair slam, you know, and it showed the bias, slight bias, but the bias in the report, and I had to say something. So weaponizing Russian oligarchy. That's the next section in this chapter two. And you have to understand something about Russia under Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler Putin. And I need to get some music that, you know, sounds really diabolical, something. Anyway, oh, excuse me. (coughs) Love asthma. No, I don't, actually. So the Russian oligarchy, these aren't just rich guys. Make no mistake about it. Own legitimate businesses. But they pay the equivalent of the equivalent of protection money, and they pay it to Putin, and Putin keeps them in power, and as a result, both benefit. Sounds a lot like what Donald Trump did in New York, doesn't it? 
just an observation. So the Center for Strategic and International Studies has a report titled The Kremlin Playbook, Understanding Russian Influence in Central and Eastern Europe. And they described, according to CSIS, uh, the Russian government basically, quote, has cultivated an opaque network of patronage across the region that it uses to influence and direct decision-making, end quote. And it's true. Putin has this codependent relationship with the oligarchs, you know, the billionaires. And quite a few of the oligarchs, they were able to accumulate this extreme wealth either through illegal means or ethnically, ethically questionable means. And that was after the Soviet Union fell apart. Excuse me. So that this report says, quote, the otherwise klepto, let me start again, quote, the otherwise kleptocratic Kremlin allows these oligarchs to retain their wealth through the understanding that they will act on Putin's behalf, end quote. And the duties range from what they call, quote, elaborate displays of obeisance to, as the Kremlin playbook explicates. And these are the duties that these oligarchs perform. Quote, developing corrupt financial relationships with politicians and business people throughout Central and Eastern Europe to assist the Russian government in achieving its policy goals. The Kremlin playbook focuses mainly on countries in Central and Eastern Europe, many of which are, are or recently were emerging democracies and members of the Warsaw Pact. However, there are indications that the Kremlin has pursued similar strategies in the West as well. So, excuse me, folks. They give you some examples, which I'm not going to go into because we're kind of running short on time, at least for this story. Okay. Excuse me. <clears throat> so going on, this part of the report says the following, quote, underpinning the entire Trump-Russia scandal is Trump's long business history with Russian oligarchs, which raises the possibility <clears throat> that he may have been cultivated in the same way for years, if not decades. And that was this documented again by the Moscow Project. <clears throat> I'm going to take a break soon, folks. Mm. And, of course, another method by which Putin keeps pushing and trying to interfere, he exploits the online environment, quote, to sow discord and influence liberal democracies. Okay? And this section, again, refers to the 2016 presidential election. And it revealed that the Kremlin used quite a few cyber tools uh, responsible for a lot of the misinformation we see online. Uh, State-run media, uh, especially RT and Sputnik, supported the Kremlin's favored candidates, documented by Politico. Quote, from platforms to those not aware of their provenance are difficult to distinguish from mainstream news networks. Let me read that again. Quote, state-run media, most famously RT and Sputnik, support the Kremlin's favored candidates from platforms that, to those not aware of their provenance, are difficult to distinguish from mainstream news networks, again, according to Politico. That's a fancy way of saying 
RT and Sputnik echo what the Kremlin, what Putin wants them to say, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I don't really like the term misinformation, call it what it is, half-truths and lies. Okay? There are some paid troll bots uh, and troll farms that spread the information. They purchase ads on social media, again, according to Politico. Um, you know, Facebook and the others can claim they're innocent, but, you know, they make their money through selling ads. Okay? Hackers supported by the Russian government gain access to opposing candidates' emails, um, you know, again, through intermediaries such as WikiLeaks. So Hillary Clinton screaming about, you know, Democratic email was infiltrated. She was telling the truth. Um, Kremlin, the report goes on to say, quote, though the Kremlin tries to build plausible deniability into its techniques, such as laundering leaks through third parties, and officially denies that it interfered in the 2016 election, it has in other ways been more upfront about its cyber operations, end quote. So give an example, in February 2016, Andre, Andre Kritschik, he's a senior Kremlin advisor on cybersecurity, gave a speech at um, Russia's National Information Security Forum, Forum that really does kind of hint at how Russia pushed its influence campaign into the 2016 presidential election. And he was speaking to a Russian audience. Kritschik said the following, quote, you think we are living in 2016? No, we are living in 1948. And do you know why? Because in 1949, the Soviet Union had its first atomic bomb test. And if until that moment, the Soviet Union was trying to reach agreement with President Harry Truman to ban nuclear weapons, and the Americans were not taking us seriously in 1949, Everything changed, and they started talking to us on an equal footing. I'm warning you, we are on the verge of having something, in quotes, something in the information arena which will allow us to talk to the Americans as equals, end quote. Now, a year after Kretschik made his remarks, the U.S. intelligence community um, basically confirmed that what Kretschik was talking about in the information area yeah, had changed what they call the geopolitical equation. Okay? So that was Chapter 2. Next week from the Moscow Project, unless something else happens, God only knows, we will do Chapter 3, which is, again, the case for collusion, cultivating an asset, how Donald Trump became the perfect candidate for Russia's assault on American democracy. Now we're going to move on to our second topic. Ukraine and the Budapest Memorandum Treaty, okay? So this Budapest Memorandum is, I'm reading from Hungary today, and it is a treaty that had been engineered and built from several American administrations. It started under the George H.W. Bush administration of the elder Bush, not W. And then it went on through the Clinton administration and was signed during the, under the Clinton administration. And then it was maintained by the Obama administration and even a little bit by Trump. But, you know, let's kind of give that a second. So right now I am going to take a short break and I will be back. Thank you. 
and I'm back. Okay. Um, for some reason, the music didn't go on. I don't know what happened. All right. So let's move on. Okay. All right. So now we have the Budapest Memorandum. And this is a peace tree. Okay. As it turns out, this goes back, you trace it back to the end of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had quite a few nuclear weapons. And they had quite a few nuclear warheads that were kept in what is now known as Ukraine. So approximately some 1,700 nuclear warheads. And that was in 1990, so basically that was put together more than the number, uh, this was in the 1990s, more than the amount of nuclear warheads the United Kingdom, China, and France had all together as of the 1990s. So basically, Ukraine had what was considered the third largest nuclear arsenal of warheads in the world, next to only Russia itself and the United States. And after the Soviet Union fell apart, there was a lot of concern, and rightfully so. So this kind of deals with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and I'm all for that. But again, it goes back to intentions. You know, if you're dealing with two or more parties and they're bitter rivals, but you have honest brokers, yes, diplomacy can work. Okay, it can. The problem is when you're dealing with a crook, a criminal like Putin, it won't because he will never keep his word unless it benefits him. That's the problem, all right? And so basically these the 1,700 nuclear warheads were um, basically an inheritance that the Ukrainians had <clears throat> after the Soviet Union fell apart. <clears throat> now, the United States and Russia in particular, along with England and a few others, really pushed this treaty called the Budapest Memorandum. And the people that were proponents of this will point out that those nuclear warheads wouldn't have done Ukraine any good because the launch codes for those weapons were kept and protected in Russia. But, so they, they said when Ukrainians couldn't have used them anyway, which it really isn't true. There was a study conducted in 2016, um, according to Who, that suggested um, that within a year and a half time, the Ukrainian government could have reprogrammed the weapons and made them useful. But once again, you know, the big powers wanted to take this away from Ukraine. Um, and keep in mind, Russia is one of the signatories. So here's what happened, all right? Um, so let me get to it. All right, so this is a formal assurance. It was, Ukraine signed the deal in 1993, but I think it was finalized in 94. So in 93, Ukraine signed a deal with Russia. And I'm reading straight from this, okay? This is from, um, let's see, now what's the source here? Hungary Today, which is an independent journalistic group in Hungary. Okay, so we're going to go back here now. Um, and under the section called the Formal Assurance of Ukraine's Sovereignty, 
quote, in 1993, Ukraine signed a deal with Russia, giving up its claims. <clears throat> I'm sorry, folks. It's around that time, isn't it? Let me start again. In, quote, in 1993, Ukraine signed a deal with Russia, giving up its claims to the warheads, the nuclear warheads, that is, and the Black Sea fleet. Um, the weakened fleet was in the Ukrainian territory of Crimea after the Soviet Union's dissolution. In return for $2.5 billion, with a B, in gas and oil debt cancellation, and future supplies for its nuclear power reactors. But the country's entry into the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons was a negotiation which took three years, culminating in the Budapest Memorandum. Okay, I'm reading straight from this again. End quote. Quote, U.S. President Bill Clinton, Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and Ukrainian President Leonid Kravchuk signed the memorandum in Budapest on December 5th, according to UNDOTS.org, in return for entering the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the U.S., the U.K., and Russia agreed to the following. Again, I'm reading straight from it. I'll say it again. In return for entering the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the U.S., the U.K., and Russia agreed to the following. So they were giving, Ukraine was giving up probably their only way to deter Russian aggression. Here are the conditions. The U.S., U.K., and Russia agree that, one, Ukraine's independence, sovereignty, and existing borders shall be respected. Two, the signatory shall refrain from the threat or use of force against the territory or political independence of Ukraine. Notice it's threat or use of force. Number three, the signatory shall refrain shall refrain from influencing Ukrainian politics with economic pressure. Four, immediate United Nations Security Council action shall provide, shall provide assistance to Ukraine if it becomes the victim of an act of aggression or an object of a threat of aggression in which nuclear weapons are used. Five, nuclear weapons shall not be used against Ukraine. And six, consult in the event that questions arise on these commitments. Okay. But Putin, according to this article, broke the promise of peace on false claims. And Putin's first breach of the treaty was in 2014 when he annexed Crimea. That violated Ukraine's sovereignty. You know, Putin claimed that the invasion of Crimea, let me start again. Putin claimed that the invasion of Crimea was justified. Um, he described the Ukrainian situation as a revolution. Uh, quote, a new state arises we have not signed, to which we have not signed any obligatory documents, end quote. So Putin felt that he could just break this international agreement. And it sounds familiar, because this time when he's invading the main part of Ukraine, he's claiming that the Russian troops are doing to denazify Ukraine, okay, according to the Guardian. And keep in mind, president of Ukraine is Volodymyr Zelensky, and they said of Jewish origin. And he was elected in a fair election with 70% of the vote. What U.S. president, maybe other than Barack Obama, can claim they were elected with 70% of the vote? Seriously. One last thing. This idea that 
Zelensky's of Jewish origin. I've heard this from a lot of Christians who think they know all about Judaism, they know nothing. How many Christians could be said are of Christian origin and never go to church, never follow any of the rules? No such claim is made against them. So when you say of Jewish origin, it's like you're saying he's not a real Jew. Keep in mind, prior to Zelensky's elevation, it was difficult, if not illegal, for Jews to openly practice their faith. Trying to be a practicing Jew or a practicing Muslim in that part of the world was just as dangerous as trying to vote as a black person in the 1960s under Jim Crow. Make no mistake about it. So I've heard people, even some liberals say, well, he's of Jewish origin, he's not really a Jew. Nah. You're outsiders, you don't get to determine who's Jewish and who isn't. I'm an actual Jew. Do I practice everything? No. So stop saying he's of Jewish origin. Zelensky's a Jew, period. I had to give that up. So Zelensky warned what was going, what was happening, according to the Kiev Independent, at the 58th Munich Security Conference on February 19th, that since Russia is choosing to break the Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine, we, you know, we can do what we need to to defend ourselves. Um, now, keep in mind. Uh, this is what we're dealing with here, all right? If I were any member of any European government that wants to hold on to democratic rule, I would be very nervous right now. Now, I'm not a proponent of the old domino theory where if one falls, they all fall. No, I don't buy that because that, that theory has been used and abused too much. But in this instance, you don't have to look any further than a map. Look at where Crimea is as it faces the Black Sea, a warm water seaport which Russia has wanted to control. Look at how from Belarus, straight through Ukraine, through the, the cities that they're now attacking, it's a straight line to Crimea. Look at how they have literally surrounded the perimeter where basically these people know where to go but further west. Poland is in jeopardy. Germany's in jeopardy. Slovenia, they will march through. That's a joke. If Ukraine falls because NATO and the U.S. won't implement a no-fly zone in Ukraine, then the rest of Europe is next. And it's not hyperbole. For the last several years, we have seen where there have been Russian military ships also in the Arctic trolling right by, and, and actually, not only trolling right by the Canadian border, but also actually going over the border. You know, military people look at the map and they see, hmm, they want to control Ukraine. They want to threaten Canada. And from Canada, they could lob bombs here in the U.S. <clears throat> this is... Excuse me. <laughs> now, 
this goes on, we're basically, I'll, I'll reiterate, if Ukraine falls, the rest of Europe is next. And a political and economic powerhouse like Germany, they need to seriously worry. Putin's first career disaster happened when the two Germanys were reunited. And as vengeful as he is, you don't think he wants to, you don't think Putin wants to attack Germany? Of course he does. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now this article goes on to say how Zelensky brought up the point number six from the Budapest Memorandum. And he emphasized um, that Ukraine has made serious attempts to bring together all the signatories for a consult three times since 2014, and every attempt was unsuccessful to rebuffed. And Zelensky's warning really underscores what they say here. Quote, Zelensky's warning underscores rebuilding of the nation's nuclear arsenal, an option which Ukraine's ambassador to Germany said the government was already considering last spring. The alleged potential of Ukraine to produce nuclear weapons has also been cited by Russian officials as a justification for war. However, there is no proof of Ukraine having begun rearming itself with nuclear weapons. In fact, Western experts have asserted that Ukraine does not have the scientific, logistical, financial, and geopolitical strength to arm itself with nuclear warheads at this time, as documented by the New York Times. You know what, at this point, I wouldn't blame Ukraine if they did. All right, Ukraine did not provoke anyone. This was a unilateral war crime committed by Russia, by Putin, against Ukraine, period. And it started in 2014 when Putin took Crimea and put in a puppet. Okay, so there's another article here where they quote, let's see now, it's from Hungary today, foreign prime minister Antal 30 years ago said it's naive to think Russia gave up on Central Europe. So quote, three decades ago, Joseph Antal, the first freely elected prime minister of Hungary after the regime change, because it was part of the Soviet Union, talked about what might be expected from Russia in the future. He warned that Russia did not give up its political role in the Central European region. He said, quote, it's a naive man who thinks that Russia has given up its political role in the Central European region. Um, I agree with him. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he goes on to say that Russia's always had big goals, even dating back to the times of Tsarist Russia, and really said that um, the American presence is necessary we need NATO, we need all regional organizations, we need our security. Look, the bottom line very simply is this. I know President Biden is worried that a no-fly zone would trigger World War III. And for those of you that, are on, that don't understand what a no-fly zone is, it, you know, no-fly zone isn't something that's just safety, okay? It is entering into a war zone, and it is not permitting um, the attackers airspace. So yeah, it is entering into a war. I would say that President Biden's wrong. World War III already started. And it started the second those tanks rolled into Ukraine. The second that Vladimir Putin broke the Budapest Memorandum Agreement. 
period. There's no guesswork here. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and the longer NATO and the U.S. waits, the harder it's going to be. You know, you don't have to look any further than to see what the map tells you. The map is saying that Putin is planning a big invasion of all of Europe, just like Hitler did. It is 1938. And Putin is Hitler. Make no mistake about it. And unfortunately, NATO is acting a lot like Neville Chamberlain did before, hoping the policies of appeasement would quiet down um, a would-be murderous dictator. And we all saw how well that went. That's sarcasm. Appeasement doesn't work. And neutrality doesn't work. And, you know, to borrow from Howard Zinn, neutrality always benefits the oppressor and creates more victims. You have to choose sides. So that's our report today on the Budapest tree. And now we have our little section that I enjoy. This is our Jackass of the Week Award. Drum roll. All right, so the jackass of the week is this idea that um, I really enjoy taking down the high and mighty and the wannabes because, frankly, their arrogance is beyond the pale, beyond the pall. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Rich and powerful are basically prisoners of their own arrogance and ignorance. And let's face facts. The rich, the very rich and powerful really run everything, and they are addicts. Our planet is being ruled by addicts, because, and their drug of choice is greed, greed for wealth, and greed for power. And addicts are insane. And one of the groups that helps enable these addicts, these oligarchs, is a group that goes by this little benign acronym called ALEC. It's also known as the American Legislative Exchange Council. That's the bill mill. Okay, it's the bill mill, basically the lawyers of ALEC, many of which are from a law firm of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon, they write these templates, which are example bills of basically laws that rich oligarchs like Charles Koch want passed. Excuse me. And Alec is the bill mill where bad ideas come to life. Everything from climate change denial to COVID denial. You know, don't you know COVID is just the flu? Newsflash, it's not. COVID is not just the flu. COVID has killed practically a million of the fellow Americans in two years' time. But this is the, Alec is the bill mill where bad ideas come to life. Climate change denial, COVID denial, anti-critical race theory. In other words, let's whitewash history and deny students the right to critically think. All the anti-democrat, I won't say all, that's not fair. But most of the anti-democratic bills that you see circulating in various state legislatures, because that's what Alec focuses on. They focus on individual state legislatures. 
There is a reason. Have you ever noticed that a lot of these bills, whether it's in Texas or Florida or Missouri or wherever, they look suspiciously identical? Well, there's a reason for it, because they all come from the ALEC template, or a majority of them do. In fact, these GOP legislatures, because Democrats don't use ALEC, not that I know of anyway, maybe Joe Manchin, I take that back, but 95% of Democrats don't. Uh, and Joe Manchin's not a real Democrat anyway. Neither is Kirsten Sinema. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of wrapping right now, but majority of these bills come from ALEC, and these bills that these legislators, these, these GOP legislators are so lazy that they take the template, and it looks like a template, okay, you know, where you check off what you want and what you don't want, and they don't even bother to, you know, put it on their own stationery. They just put their name on and say, here's the bill I wrote. Okay. Alex provides crib notes for legislators. Make no mistake about it. Alex's budget comes from a variety of groups that basically funnel money from uh, corporate and, and billionaires that are also ultra-conservative. And let's call these conservatives what they are, okay? White supremacists, neo-Nazis, corporate slavers. Because when you ask a conservative, what are you trying to conserve? You know, because the name conserve is right there in the label, conservative, meaning someone who conserves. So what is, makes sense? Ask them, what is it you're trying to conserve? And they just tend to go, uh, uh, they can't tell you. You know, if anything, they'll come back with it. So you're okay with pedophiles? One has nothing to do with the other, and I never said that. Never. But, again, conservatives aren't about conserving anything. Oh, I take that back. They're about conserving one thing, the illegitimate status quo, which grants unfair and undemocratic advantage to white Christian males, period. That's it. And Alex, the American Legislative Exchange Council, is the author of 95%, most likely, most of these bad bills and laws that are circulating in Florida, in Texas, in Missouri, in so many different states. The Don't Say Gay Bill, hello. Anti-CRT, hello. Keep in mind, Critical race theory is not taught in K through 12. It is only taught in graduate level curriculums, like if you're going for your PhD or if you're going to law school. But when they say anti-CRT, what they're really saying is we don't want to teach the truth about racism. We don't want to teach the truth about Jim Crow. We don't want to teach the truth about slavery in this country. We want a Disney-fied version that basically <coughs> keeps white Christian bigots feeling good about themselves and their history and their unearned advantage, their unearned privilege. That's what it's about, but <clears throat> nothing else. So that's what we're dealing with. Alec authors most of it. I won't say all of it. That's not fair. Most of it, though. And, you know, it's, it's about time to go after Alec. It's about time to sue them period, for interfering. Make no mistake about it. Here in Missouri, my home state, the secretary, one of the ALEC officers right now, 
is a man named Justin Hill, and he serves in the Missouri legislature. It shouldn't be. Our governor, Mike Parson, who is as dumb as a post, in my opinion, was an Alex beneficiary. The man who wants the GOP nomination for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Roy Blunt, our Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, was, when he was a legislature, was in the legislature, an Alec beneficiary. Make no mistake about it. And so this is why the jackass of the week, or jackass of the week, goes to Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who never met a democratic idea that they didn't hate and want to destroy. That's what it is, folks. So, you know, once again, um, next week, we're going to be talking more about the Moscow Project and how, yes, Donald Trump is most likely a Russian asset who has seriously harmed our national security. We're going to be talking more about these other forces behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, we will have our jackass of the week, um, the... Um, my other show, The Environmental Justice Report, has been on hiatus recently. We will be coming back. We usually air on Thursdays, but all of our shows on Progressive News Network, on Blog Talk Radio, are archived, so you can listen to them at your discretion. Um, I also have a publishing home at BuzzFlash and Op-Ed News, and I'm working on a piece right now that will probably um, publish later this week. So that's the news we have today. Um, and one other thing, you know, I, I've been toying with the idea of adding a little feature. I think it's time for us to get out as progressives, to get out our little voodoo dolls, because the far right's always accusing us of being Satanists and everything else, even though that's not the case, and get these little toy voodoo dolls and stick pins in the Trumps, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course. But, you know, little joke there. Uh, you know, I'll end with this quote um, from Mark Twain. I, I don't think it's an exact quote, but you'll get the paraphrasing where, you know, um, basically, you know, he says he hates politicians. Uh, no, wait, what was it again? Uh, hold on a second, folks, because i got to find this. This is just too good. So give me a second here. Um it's a Twain remark on politicians. I say Twain quote. Okay. Sorry about the delay. We still have time, though. Um, yeah, this is uh, – Mark Twain is was a Missouri native, and this is – this sums up – his quote sums up what I think about most politicians – Few exceptions, not many. And I'll try and use, I've heard his voice before, I'll try and say it the way he would have said it. I'll leave you with this passing, this ending thought. Quote, politicians and diapers must be changed often and for the same reason. End quote. And with that I say good night and God bless from Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. Don't forget, insult a Republican tomorrow. Bye.